You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. So this is not a paid advertisement, so don't fast forward it. There's kind of something interesting. Uh, every so often, I will use a minute or two at the beginning of the podcast to tell you about some interesting things in our world that aren't really ready for their own entire SpyCast, or maybe in some cases they aren't ready quite yet. This week I want to tell you about Tracy Walder, who worked as a staff operations officer at CIA's Counterterrorism Center of Weapons and Mass Destruction Group. After CIA, she also worked as a special agent at the FBI's Los Angeles field office, specializing in Chinese counterintelligence operations. Quite the resume. Now, she's a teacher at the Hockaday School in Dallas, Texas which is a 105-year-old all-girls day and boarding school with over 12,000 students enrolled in grades pre-K through 12. As an assignment, Tracy had some of her students create a national security podcast that is available now to all of us. Spy Gals is a podcast solely created by high school seniors to help young adults navigate the complex issues surrounding national security and foreign policy. It is designed to encourage listeners to consider the questions of why national security matters to them. Ultimately, these young women hope to engage younger generations to take an active role in national security and foreign policy decisions that will affect them. Spy Gals is great. It's available wherever you get your favorite podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, wherever else. I mean, you're, you're listening to a podcast right now. Just check it out uh, wherever you're listening to this one. Look, these are young women trying to change the world in the best way possible. Let's give them our support. At least it's worth a couple minutes to check it out. These are not you know, this is not kid lit. This is not, you know, child stuff. These are these are young adults right before they go to college doing serious work about bioterrorism, about spies, about really important issues that could really open some eyes around the world. So give them a chance. Um, you know, I, I wish when I was 16 or 17 that I was this advanced. Um, I think it's worth giving these these young women uh, an opportunity to uh, to get ahead in doing this. It's a really extraordinary idea. We're joined today by Henry Hemming, who's the author of five works of Durham fiction, including most recently Agent M and the ingenious Mr. Pike, which landed on the New York Times monthly espionage bestseller list. He's written for the Sunday Times, Daily Telegraph, Daily Mail, The Times, The Economist, 
FT Magazine, and The Washington Post, and has given interviews on Radio 4's Today program and NBC's Today Show. He's also the author of the new book, Agents of Influence, A British Campaign, A Canadian Spy, and The Secret Plot to Bring America into World War II. Welcome, Henry. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. Pleasure. Really good to be here. So I can honestly, I can say that we, we, we talked to you before um, via phone about Agent M, which is yeah, a pleasure. We now we actually did meet you in person. And I had a book come out earlier where I, I used the ingenious Mr. Pike very heavily <laughs> in that book because uh, as a character was involved in the, uh, basically the iceberg aircraft carrier plot, which is extraordinary is. there too. So we have crossed paths in one way or another in the past, but it's nice to finally and it sounds fantastic, by the way, nuking the moon. Yes. Looking forward to it. I appreciate that. Um, and when this book f kind of first came across my desk, I kind of chuckled. I'm like, okay, Bill Stevenson. There's there's a library mm. full of books on Bill Stevenson. Mm. Um, Little Bill, as he's you know called here in the U.S. <laughs> um, so why is now the time to write a new book on Bill Stevenson? I think the most obvious reason is declassification. There's a whole load of good new material that casts his operation in a new light. But for me, there was another, I mean, the first reason that got me into it before declassification was actually just following the news in 2016, reading about the, at the time, alleged Russian influence campaign in the United States in the months leading up to the presidential election. And of course, as a historian of intelligence, I'm thinking back to previous examples of this. And I became intrigued by the idea that the, the British influence campaign 75 years previously might have actually been larger than the Russian one and more effective. So that was the, I suppose that kind of sowed the seed, the declassification, realizing there's new material. So there are new ways of seeing this particular passage of history. And also, I mean, there's a lot of, you alluded to it, there's a lot that's been written about Bill Stevenson. A lot of it has been made up, exaggerated. Yeah, a lot of it's garbage. I mean, that, the <laughs> most famous so. book yeah. about him is essentially fiction. It's it's nonsense. The one that sold, I got two million copies. I won't only right. Yeah, it is just a bunch of fiction. It's a man called Intrepid, and he goes wrong before you even open the book. <laughs> he wasn't called Intrepid. That wasn't his code name. That was uh, a moniker he gave himself later on in life. And yeah, it's, it's difficult because there are things in that book that are accurate, but at the same time, there is so much that is not. And there is this story about how the publisher of that book later had it reclassified as fiction, which I mean, as someone writing history of intelligence, you, you don't want that happening to your book. Well, he's wiping his tears away with all the money that he made from selling two million yeah, plus I think he copies. Made, he made quite a lot. Yeah. And there is this story. I, I've spoken to someone who, uh, who recalls having a conversation with the author of that book. William Stevenson with a V. And apparently he asked him, so why did you make so much of it up? And his response was, if I'd known it was going to sell this well, I'd never have done that. Well, <laughs> Which is sobering. Well, then there's an interesting parallel between that answer and our character, in this case, Bill Stevenson's life, is because he does make up a lot of his earlier life. And if he probably might not have, if he had known how famous he would become later on as well. Mm. You're right, and he does. He, he runs away from his past in so many ways. And he has a pretty traumatic start to life. By the age of five, he's been, his father has died. His mother has moved away from town, put him up for adoption, and taken his two siblings with her. So effectively, he's been orphaned. But, I mean, arguably, it's worse than that, knowing that his mum and his sister and his brother are somewhere, but just not with him. 
and he's growing up in, in poverty in Winnipeg, in the red light district. And so when he moves to London in the 1920s, he just clams up about his past, doesn't talk about it. If he is pushed, he, he makes out, he eludes the idea of coming from a, from a respectable background, having a wealthy father. Not maybe wealthy is putting it too strongly, but you're right. He's good at reinventing his past. He's, um, and this is effectively what he starts to do on a much grander scale, but not with his past, with other people's past, mm -hmm. if you like, in 1940, when he's sent out to the US. Well, I mean, this is not necessarily, if you think of the kind of beginnings of MI6 and very similar to the beginnings of CIA, it was very aristocratic. It was kind of the right out of Eaton, right out of the Oxbridge, and you know, here in the United States, all the Yale and Harvard guys. That is not the background of somebody that's typical at the height of MI6. Mm. Um, now, orphans, sure, but you know, orphans like Bond who go to Eaton and you know, be or groomed to become secret agents. He's not your stereotypical MI6 agent. And really, the story of how he's discovered, to use that phrase, by MI6 is pretty extraordinary. Also, he kind of sets up his own mm. private intelligence agency that's getting better information than SIS actually is. Mm. He does. He's, um, so by the 1930s, he's, uh, he's a businessman. He's a wealthy Canadian living in London. And he's got stakes in companies which operate in Germany, which operate in Sweden and other parts of Scandinavia. And I guess like any businessman, he wants an edge on his competitors and rivals. So he develops this informal network of people who can tell him what's going on economically in places like Germany and Sweden. But increasingly, the intelligence he's getting from these people also allude to political developments. And by the late 1930s, he's putting together reports and he's sharing it among friends. So he's passing it on to um, friends, including Sir Rafe Glynn, who's a conservative backbencher. This guy passes it on to another conservative backbencher, Winston Churchill. And eventually, it takes a while, but eventually this report gets to, uh, one of these reports gets to MI6. And I mean, it's, it's interesting trying to work out what was Stevenson trying to do here. I mean, obviously, part of it is just straight patriotic motivation. He's worried about what's going on in Nazi Germany. He's someone who's, I suppose, whose national loyalty has been galvanized by what happened to him during the First World War. He fought briefly in the trenches. He then joined the Royal Flying Corps. He became a decorated flying ace. He feels huge loyalty to Britain and the British Empire and to the monarch and so on. He'll do whatever he can for, uh, for king and country. But there's also, I think, something else. And there's something about the way he, he keeps trying to come to the attention of MI6, which to my mind suggests he's attracted to espionage. He wants to be involved in the world of intelligence. MI6 at that time is the most exclusive club anywhere in the world. Who wouldn't want to join that particular group? And, uh, and so Stevenson eventually comes to their attention. He does well in an, an informal interview, and then he's taken on on a voluntary basis. He's sent off to Sweden to operate this, uh, to keep running this agent network, but to do it with MI6 involvement. Unlike most authors of intelligence history, you actually have a familial relationship with the, I mean, you, you would not be sitting here <laughs> if it wasn't for a Bill Stevenson. I mean, can you talk I a little wouldn't. bit about that? Because that, that's rare, right? You don't always see that, you know, when people are writing about people, like characters, whether or not, you know, they're American or otherwise. In this mm. case, um, he saves your dad's life. He does. You're right. I would not be here were it not for Bill Stevenson and something he did on a sunny afternoon in 1938. 
And I mean, the, the backstory to this is my, on one side I have um, Canadian family. So my two Canadian grandparents were living in London and they got to know Stevenson. My Canadian granny also was, um, was living in Winnipeg at about the same time as Stevenson was. They're both living in poverty. They had, I think that was part of the connection when they then meet in London. Anyway, they all get on. They start seeing a lot of each other. I've gone through their diaries. They're going off to Stevenson's house out in the country for kind of lunches and, and meals and so on. And then on this particular day, my granny takes my three-year-old dad off to go and see Stevenson for lunch. I think they had a good lunch. And uh, <laughs> I don't know how much was drunk. But anyway, after this lunch, Stevenson turns to my granny, says, where is your three-year-old son? She has no idea. He runs off, without another word, to the far end of the garden where there is this, uh, this pond, this pond covered in water lilies. And the story I heard growing up is that by the time Stevenson arrives, or just Bill, as he always was in the story I'd hear. By the time Bill arrives, Dad is, is drowning. Bill dives in fully clothed and fishes him out. So he saves his life. He then becomes his, his godfather a few weeks later. And it's one of these strange things where I've, I've grown up hearing that story. And we all know that thing where you have a story you've heard from kind of day one. Right. You don't attach much value to it. And it took me a while to realize that the Bill in this story was actually Sir William Stevenson who ran this influence campaign. And what was exciting was then finding my grandparents' diaries, finding photographs, finding hundreds of references to Stevenson, but also realizing that there's a link to why my Canadian grandparents were in America in the months leading up to Pearl Harbor, and why my Canadian granny was um, giving lectures, trying to persuade American soldiers to, um, to change their minds and uh, to support the war. And probably why your your Canadian grandparents were too drunk at the lunch to know that your dad had wandered away because the legend, of course, of Bill Stevenson is that he made the strongest martinis on the planet. Yeah. And, of course, his recipe included, at the very end... Shaken, not stirred. Right. He was... Uh, which I think brings us neatly to, to Ian Fleming, who came to work for Stevenson... And when Stevenson is, is by now operating the BSC, British Security Coordination, and it's headquartered in the Rockefeller Center in New York on the 35th and 36th floor. And it's a vast operation, and, and Fleming is there temporarily. He's only there for about, I think, seven or eight weeks. And obviously he's interested by the work, but he's also very interested in Stevenson. And he takes a lot of notes notes down the way Stevenson does things, later describes Stevenson as one of the, uh, the role models for James Bond, but also notes down his, uh, his gin martini recipe. Well, let's take a step back, because I, I think in hindsight in 2019, it's very difficult for certainly American listeners to understand the, the lack of relationship between the United States and Great Britain in the 1930s. I, you know, I, we're mm. so... Anyone who is under the age of 70 at this point is so used to this special relationship that was forged in World War II. Mm. It's hard to think back. I mean, when I used to teach World War I, the students were always amazed that it was just as likely the United States would come in on the side of Germany as mm. it was Britain. Not We weren't going to come in on the side of Hitler in World War II, but there certainly was a period in which it became harder and harder to see the United States joining the war with the British. Mm. Uh, as you mentioned, um, during Dunkirk in June of 1940, so we're talking about a month, a year and a, six months before Pearl Harbor, 
only 8% of Americans wanted to go to war against the Germans. I mean, mm, that's, mm. that's a quick turnaround. Mm. And a lot of it is from World War I, where there are a lot of people who blamed um, arms dealers and the shady British intelligence agencies mm, and, mm. and people, war profiteers, for, for getting us into the war. And you have a series of neutrality acts. I mean, I'm not trying to teach 1930s American history here, but the idea that you know the United States was not destined to ally itself with the British is not mm. something that is really thought a lot about today. And so you're like, oh, Bill Stevenson had to convince us to go to an war. Well, what's the big deal? Well, it was huge. Mm. And actually, this was his job was harder, you could argue, than those trying to keep us out of the war. Because the vast majority of Americans were on that side. Hmm. The U.S. Army barely existed. The major voices against the war were these heavyweight heroes of American culture. Henry Ford, of course, Charles Lindbergh, yes. members of Congress, very outspoken. And really, when Stevenson comes here, he kind of kicks off this battle of the influencers. Hmm. You know, that that hmm. kind of underhanded battle of the influencers that takes place in the American press. The Germans aren't just sitting by idly either, right? And that's, to me, you kind of talked about the 2016 election. I'm not going to make this political, but there was a phrase that popped up during the 2016 election. It's still been used since. That should be very familiar to you doing this research, and that is America First. Mm. You talk a little bit about that organization, how the Germans were influencing that during the 1930s. Well, you're absolutely right. And this was when I was researching Agents of Influence. In some ways, one of the kind of most interesting and challenging parts of it was getting into that 1930s isolationist American mindset. And I think if, I realized early on doing this book that if that part of the story wasn't represented well in the book, it wouldn't make sense because you wouldn't understand what Stevenson was up against. You also wouldn't understand why Roosevelt wasn't more forceful, wasn't being more outspoken in trying to bring the country into the war once he decided that politically, morally, whatever, it was a good idea to do. And America First begins life. There's, um, there's a fantastic book by Sarah Churchwell which um, called Behold America. She's really good on the, the history of this term. But as she explains, it, it starts life as a, a patriotic slogan, like kind of Royal Britannia or today's sort of USA. Mm -hmm. You'd say America first, and people would just think you're being patriotic. But in the 1920s, it takes on a political edge. It begins to be used by politicians when campaigning. And it has more of an isolationist slant. It also has an anti-immigration slant. And this is quite clear. And so it continues just as a kind of a thing in the background until the 5th of September, 1940, when something called the America First Committee comes into being. And this is very simply an attempt, a successful attempt, to bring together all of the, the isolationist groups in America at that time campaigning against going to war. And one of the people who quickly becomes a figurehead, not an actual leader, he was never good at actually sort of the, the management of committees and so on, but a popular figurehead and, and the most, by far and away, the most popular speaker for America First was Charles Lindbergh. And it's worth sort of touching on what their arguments were. One of them is to, to look back to the Founding Fathers, to talk about their insistence on avoiding entangling foreign alliances. Another one was uh, military. He was arguing, with plenty of justification, that Hitler had no viable plan to actually get an army across the Atlantic and to invade Right, it was going to be hard States. enough for him to cross the English Channel, yeah. let alone the Atlantic <laughs> Ocean. You know. Yeah, it was, I mean, it, it wasn't possible. 
and at that time certainly that was part of it there's also i think uh, more a sort of feeling that of being an anti-establishment outsider group of not being told what to believe and what to think by the white house and to an extent by the east coast press and then also there's this this hangover from the first world war this idea that america was tricked america was tricked into entering the first world war there were arms dealers and the British who somehow came together, tricked the country. We must not make that mistake again. That was part of the thinking. And this group comes into being September 1940, and it has a lot of financial backing. Soon, about six months later, it has 850 chapters around the country. It has just shy of a million members. It's, it's huge. Well, one, one thing you didn't mention I thought that was interesting was also what they were arguing was that Germany was unbeatable. Mm. That Lindbergh had mm. just come back from watching the German army. They had conquered all of Europe without even breaking a sweat. Mm. It looked like they were going to flatten the UK. Why in the world would we want to get involved in a losing effort yeah. against this, this force that was unstoppable? There is. I mean, that's another part of it. There's also, as becomes more and more clear in the book, there's a, a racial element. And Lindbergh saw it as he didn't want, he wanted the white race, as he called it, to unite and to come together against. He was more worried about Russia. For some reason, he saw Russia as racially different, and he wanted the white race to come together against uh, the Russians. And this, um, but this is something he sort of, he, he admits, but he doesn't put at the absolute forefront of his campaign. But this racial and, and increasingly anti-Semitic flavor to his speeches becomes more apparent the longer he goes on. And to an extent, the longer Stevenson and others are targeting him, and making sure there are people heckling at his meetings, are putting out literature which attacks him, are organizing marches which, uh, again, are attacking him and trying to uh, create violence outside some of his meetings. So without jumping ahead too far, but he, Lindbergh begins to feel, justifiably, that there is a conspiracy against mm -hmm. him. But where he gets it wrong is in trying to work out who is behind that. Right. But in many cases, Lindbergh himself doesn't realize he's got backing of the Germans. Yeah. And, I mean, you know, this, this, was this is certainly not a native movement on both sides. I mean, it might have started that way, but it's mm. being uh, goosed up on both sides by lots of money, by lots of influence. Mm. It's basically the British versus the Germans in the United States. So the playground yeah. is the U.S. popular opinion. And there's an amazing symmetry. They both, the British and the Germans, they both have agents of influence, hence the title of the book. And, and Lindbergh becomes unwittingly an agent of influence. At no point does he directly communicate right. with the German embassy. Which is different, actually, than those that are working with Bill Stevenson, because they may not consider themselves as being agents, mm. um, but people like you know, Black Jack Pershing, the, the American hero from World War I, yeah. and of course, people like William Donovan, mm. Mm. Wild Bill, um, who is, we'll talk about in a second, we can go right into it now if you want to, this idea of he would never in his life say that he was working for the British. He was certainly working with the British <laughs> as a as, as, as like-minded individual pushing for American involvement in the war. Yeah. It's, um, I mean, we were talking about why, why I wanted to write this book. One of the things I always look for when I'm writing a book, it's not just characters, it's not just new material, it's not just a historical moment that sheds some kind of light on the present. It's also characters with interesting relationships. And if you don't have that, I think something about the book won't work. And that relationship between the two Bills, 
Stevenson Donovan is is fascinating, mainly because you're not always sure who's in charge. It very much starts out as Stevenson trying to cultivate Donovan, and he sets his sights on Donovan. He flatters him. He feeds him intelligence. He makes him feel important at a time when he is he's at a low ebb in his political life, also his family life. And at the same time, Donovan's getting a lot out of this. He's getting status. He's getting well. He gets the office that, in some ways, he's been angling towards. He becomes director of the first centralized intelligence agency in, in the U.S. And that was, you know, partly Stevenson pushing him, but also he recognized this was an opportunity for him. So he was, he allowed himself to be pushed. Another interesting character that it usually ends up being a footnote in history. I mean, we we look back at. Franklin Roosevelt's victories and you kind of think, oh, there's Alf Landon. I don't remember a whole lot about him. There's Wendell Wilkie. I don't remember a whole lot about him. But now I'm thinking twice because Wilkie's a character that is, I would say, I come out of reading this with a lot more respect hmm. for him. Hmm. Um, there's we, we think today that politics have gone off the rails, that everyone is, is extreme compared. They were just as, more extreme, just as extreme there. Roosevelt was almost impeached three or four times. Mm. People screaming that he was worse than Stalin, the court packing <laughs> and the New Deal and all that. Then you have someone like Wendell Wilkie who is a hardcore Republican, right? You would certainly not say he's a kind of a rhino today, but he comes around and kind of supports the president. Mm. Even during the campaign against the president, mm. the one thing you can kind of pound him over the head is his support for the British and that's something that he says no I agree with that mm. and later becomes a very important voice for the interventionist he does he's um no he's incredible he's an icon of, of bipartisanship he's someone who I mean I think he it wasn't exactly the timing he wanted but essentially very soon after losing the presidential election he he comes out in favor of intervention and what makes this so amazing is that only two months previously he's been on the campaign trail saying we must stay out of the war Roosevelt is a warmonger, and he's in cahoots with the British, and uh, and and it was it was working. The poll numbers were were, were going in his favour, and um, but you know to an extent this was this was a position that he'd been sort of talked into, he'd been pressured into by senior Republican bigwigs, and he comes out in January saying actually I'm in favour of intervention, and there's this fascinating moment, um, something else I, I discovered when researching the book, and it's one of those moments where. I mean, every historian listening will, will know it. When you find something in the archives and you just can't quite believe it's true, you have to read it again and again and again and just pinch yourself. On the day that Roosevelt was sworn in for his third term as president, the man who millions of Americans really hoped to, to have seen in his place was having a meeting in secret with the MI6 head of station for the Americas, Bill Stevenson. And I read a report of this conversation and it's extraordinary. I mean, Wilkie is telling this MI6 officer everything that he's discussed with Roosevelt in the White House just the day before. He's talking about his plans for the future. He's talking about what he can do to help Britain and so on. I mean, there's one line where Stevenson says, there's, there's actually, Wilkie told me so much, I can't get it all into this report. So, <laughs> Well, that fueled, I mean, not just that, but I mean, there have already been speculation that Wilkie's flip was because he had been recruited at a British agent, there's a there's a book that makes this argument, yeah, not a very good argument, um, but there has been talk certainly, and this is not this is in the 1990s, I believe, late 90s, 
where this argument was made that he actually was recruited and then flipped by the British, mm. you don't find that convincing at all. I mean, if you purely look at this, this short period around the time I'm looking at those kind of the months around early 1941, then yes, it seems sort of obvious. He's doing everything he can to help the British. There he is talking to an MI6 officer. Of course he is. But then you look at what he does later. And he becomes this utterly outspoken critic of Britain and the British Empire. By 1943, 1944, he is a thorn in the side. Churchill is, is angry about everything he's saying and doing. And if the British really did have dirt on him, that wouldn't have happened, presumably. But also, if he had an actual relationship with MI6, again, you can't imagine that happening. So I'm open to, to the possibility, but it just doesn't add up based on the, the larger picture right. of what Wilkie does. We'll be right back after this. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Well, let, me, let me ask you about something that I think a lot of American historians, or at least anyone who's studied kind of the history of America getting into the war, will understand. And that's kind of the incremental steps mm. that are taken by Roosevelt, whether it comes destroyers for bases deal, lend lease, you know, conscription in the United States, the kind of somewhat neutering of the neutrality acts, kind of step by step. It almost seems as though, and maybe this is hindsight playing kind of on my head, that this was. Bill Stevenson and the British plan was to kind of incrementally walk the Americans closer to war or did it just kind of happen the way it happened <laughs> or can we not I mean, I mean causality is always near impossible to do but I mean how how do, how do we explain this by piece by piece because I know he's, his leash is very short yeah uh, there wasn't a to lot of leeway with, yeah yeah it's um well this is the question I kind of tussled with during the writing of this book and I think it's, it's so important before writing any of it to get that line correct and in the past people have argued one of those extremes either this was the British that did this and they kind of almost single-handedly shifted American public opinion that doesn't hold up at the same time the alternative that really the, what the British did was just sort of yeah, you know, I don't want to say pissing in the wind but <laughs> it, it would have happened anyway right. and, uh, and they were simply part of a process that was already underway and the way I would characterise it is Stevenson plus a small group of interventionists, many of them East Coasters, many of them close to the White House in the American government, powerful media figures like Henry Luce. They combined, it was an Anglo-American effort which shifted American public opinion over the course of the last six, seven months of 1941. That's where you see the numbers really start to move. How much credit do we give to the German effort 
in actually bringing the Americans into the war. And the way I'm saying that is mm. because you look at America first kind of taking that that turn toward being more of what it was during the 20s, more kind of KKK, mm. anti-Semitism, when, you know, Lindbergh comes out and gives his The Jews Are Running Everything speech, which yeah. every newspaper in the country afterwards said, you know, this is horrible. People like Father Coughlin, who, yeah. you know, it just it's just so over the top. You start seeing some American perceptions shift almost naturally because of how far the Germans, the German-backed people mm -hmm. are willing to go. Almost it turns off a lot of Americans also. I mean, mm. where do you put that in this? No, I think you're absolutely right. The, um, are you referring to the, uh, the Lindbergh speech, yeah. 11th of September, 1941? And not only does he say he thinks the Jews are, are secretly, there's a Jewish cabal within America who are secretly plotting to, uh, to bring the country into the war. But he also adds this threat, this idea of they better watch out because uh, the American people can only hold themselves back for so long. And what was fascinating doing the research was finding the evidence of, of messages from the German embassy where they're told by Berlin, we need the idea of an American pogrom against American Jews to be, to be out there. And then one of the leading figures at the German embassy, General von Bütteker, who's a friend of these people who are friends with Lindbergh, passes this idea on and we don't know that these close friends of Lindbergh then put the idea in his head but the fact that they're told this and then just a few weeks later Lindbergh says almost exactly the same thing in his speech to me is, is fairly conclusive that he was fed this idea he was or at least encouraged to go public with it so you're right in the sense this idea does I think originate with the Germans and I don't think they understood the impact it was going to have I don't think they predicted the, I think they were blinded by their own extraordinary anti-Semitism. They imagined it actually would lead to a pogrom, and they didn't think it would lead to national widespread condemnation. And, and it's extraordinary, the level of condemnation, the outrage. You have streets named after Charles Lindbergh, and people are saying we need to change the name of this street. He's, um, yeah, he's excoriated. Well, that's, I mean, people don't quite, I mean, I, I don't, except that I've read enough about this, understand how much of a icon Charles Lindbergh was in the United States. This wasn't when you've got you know media personalities that come out of Twitter or YouTube or other mm. places. This is when there's a handful of Americans that would be on the Mount Rushmore of icons and yeah. Lindbergh would absolutely be yeah. one of these people. And the the fall so quickly from that position. I mean, like you said, like mm. taking his name off of street signs and every newspaper in the country mm. coming out against him. This had to have been a kick in a, in a very unpleasant place for the German push mm. to keep the Americans out of war. And I'm wondering, I, to me, it just seemed like almost it was um, counterproductive how much the Germans had put into pushing this America first idea. Mm. That almost helps what Bill Stevenson was trying to do. It does. It does. It's, um, but I mean, it, yeah, they, they go too far. But the, um, and I, I found it also extraordinary, just that the fall from grace that Lindbergh undergoes. I mean, at the start of the war, he is, in a way, sort of an equivalent, a modern-day equivalent, a sort of latter-day equivalent of a kind of Brad Pitt figure, and he's just sort of universally loved. But there's another element to this, where his first son was kidnapped right. and killed, and so he has this tragic quality as well. Philip Roth described him as the, the martyred titan of American culture. So he is, yeah, he can almost do no wrong, and yet manages he, to really He figures out wrong. a way to do it. Yeah. So that's happening kind of, in the forefront, in the press. There's a lot going on behind the scenes, as you would expect. 
with intelligence agencies. And there's a decision made very near the Pearl Harbor uh, event um, that a lot of people don't talk a lot about is that kind of this exchange of intelligence at a level you would only expect for two countries that are allied in a war together. But the United States is not yet at war. Mm. This is an extraordinary decision made by the British mm. to let in the Americans on everything with no guarantee that they would come in on the side and not just mm. pass it along. I mean, they weren't going to pass it to Germans probably, but no guarantee that the Americans were going to come into the war. But opening mm. up the full books, kind of like we have it today with the Five Eyes Agreement, but this is prior to that mm. relationship. Le Carre puts it really well. He, um, he talks about what happens when you give a secret to someone. And, um, and it's not always a gift. It's also a way of bringing that person closer, whether they understand that or know that at the time. And the British, because it was one of the few currencies they really had. I mean, they're running out of actual currency, but they had, um, yeah, they had the currency of intelligence and secrets, and they were using it. They were trying to use this to buy American support and trust at a senior governmental level. And you're right, it worked. Well, and one thing they really pushed to do is to get the creation of what becomes the OSS at the yeah. time is the COI. Not just that, but to get William Donovan to run it. And yeah. I think that, again, we almost kind of look at that as a fait accompli, where if Roosevelt made the decision to have a centralized agency, Donovan, of course, would be the head. There's a lot of conversation about that. They didn't want to mm. seem too eager yeah. to push Bill Donovan as the head of this because it may back, backfire and Roosevelt think, well, why do the British want Donovan? Let's pick somebody else. <laughs> yeah, and there, um, and there's this. Uh, I love the accounts of this of uh, of the guy Ian Fleming's boss, uh, the, the later model for M in James Bond, who goes in to see Roosevelt, and he desperately wants to try and encourage Donovan to put this idea in his mind. But he knows at the same time that if he says to Roosevelt, "I think you should put Donovan in the charge," that's the one thing he won't do. Right. So he just talks up Donovan, saying, "What a wonderful guy he is." And then makes a really bad suggestion for who he thinks should run the new intelligence agency, knowing he hopes that Roosevelt will instead go for Donovan. And then Donovan turns it down in the meeting. Right. <laughs> and that's another, that. so if, you, if you made the movie out of this, of course, everyone in the public would be waiting for Donovan to go, I accept. And everyone, when they, Donovan would go, no, thank you. Like, <laughs> they change the ending of this? What's going on? Yeah. We get it. I mean, it, people don't, again... I, maybe I'm projecting myself is that it's it's difficult to remember unless you're really versed on this how different Donovan and Roosevelt were politically mm -hmm. I mean they were as far opposed I mean you could, I mean it'd be like today I'm trying to think of a, an average Republican. it'd be like you know Marco Rubio joining up with Bernie Sanders <laughs> and working that's just not something yeah. that you're going to see right I mean the yeah. very far right extreme Republican and Bill Donovan, as far left as we've seen, certainly in my lifetime, not mm. in the you know, last century, Franklin Roosevelt, being close allies have a very similar, if not exactly the same position on American foreign policy. Mm. And that's just very rare for them to come together like this. Yeah. And it is um, it's strange for about, I mean, almost 12 months, Donovan becomes, actually, you could say beforehand as well, but Donovan just has this kind of roving role where he gets sent to do things by Roosevelt. He doesn't have an official position. Sometimes he's given U.S. government backing. Other times he's not. He's unofficial. But he'll, he'll do Roosevelt's bidding almost whenever he wants. And I mean, kind of the encapsulation of how strange that relationship is is the pair of them at Yale Law School 
where they are kind of as different as two students could possibly be. You've got Donovan, who's come from a, a tough neighborhood in upstate New York. He's the jock. He's big. He's um, he's a Democrat. And then there's Roosevelt, who's um, who's the opposite, who's uh, who's the dandy, who's already married by that point in his life, who doesn't take his studies very seriously, has come from a wealthy background. And apparently they, they almost never spoke. Right, whose cousin was president, who's, yeah. yeah. You know, the, the, obviously there's a huge difference. And I mean, you know, look at Bill Donovan being very similar background to Bill Stevenson, kind mm -hmm. of poor, working class upbringing, not part of this, you know, mm -hmm. elitist set. You can see why those two got along much more than you can see why Bill Donovan and Roosevelt yeah. got along later on. And there's something, there's maybe a broader point to make about a lot of the, yeah, the Bill Donovans, the Bill Stevensons, the, I mean, also someone like Alexander Corder, people who wouldn't have got jobs in intelligence before the war, perhaps, but the event of the war allows these, these different characters with more energy, more maverick qualities to them into, um, into the world of espionage and generally for the better. This might anger a lot of our OSS society members and people who just look up to Bill Donovan. How much of Donovan's early success was because the British were feeding him all <laughs> the intelligence and information that he could do? I mean, that, it seems like yeah. the beginning of the, the COI, the beginning of the OSS, was Donovan succeeding despite himself. Donovan succeeding, well, despite huge opposition from right. state, from the FBI. I mean, they all wanted this to fail. They wanted to see Donovan, not just because they, they sort of weren't particularly fond of him, but they saw his organization as a threat, a threat in terms of funding, in terms of prestige, in terms of just intelligence capability. So, yeah, they are really pitted against him. Stevenson helps a great deal. He passes a huge amount of MI6 intelligence straight on to Donovan. Donovan then passes it on to customers in the U.S. government and to the White House under his own wrapper. So as far as everyone knows... Bill Donovan's new organization is doing really well. Right, he's and, pulling uh, <laughs> in intel from all over the place. It's amazing, given it was only set up a few weeks ago. And uh, and this is, I mean, this is something I'm intrigued by, and it's not often written about. But of course, the intelligence that Stevenson was passing on was all tendentious. It was all pro-British. It had a very clear angle to it, which was saying the British are doing well. The, the tide is beginning to turn in the war, even if by that point it really was not. And what is very hard to chart is the exact effect of that on officials working in the U.S. government. If they have for about four or five months leading up to Pearl Harbor, this flow of intelligence, which suggests actually there's, you know, there's a different thing going on in the war. And yeah, I hope COI and OSS fans aren't too upset by this. But for the first three, four months of the COI's existence, it was dependent on Stevenson and the intelligence that he could produce from MI6 and the expertise as well. So I saved this topic for last because I didn't want people to turn this off immediately when I said the phrase fake news. <laughs> um, what, yeah. I guess one of the reasons that the 2016 election jumped out at you uh, when dealing with this topic was that the Russians ain't got nothing on what the British pulled off during the, up, the lead up to the Second World War as far as I call it lead up. You, British were already in it when they lead up to the American involvement in mm -hmm. the Second World War. Creating fake operations and daring exploits and mm -hmm. raids, mm -hmm. creating fake Nazi plots. I mean, you know, looking back, there's a lot of debate in World War One about the Zimmerman telegram and whether mm -hmm. or not that was a British influence operation and a plant. This is there's no debate about this. These are straight up forgeries and yeah, falsities yeah. that the 
the British created, planted in U.S. newspapers, and mm. to the point where we talked about a map of South America and a plan to abolish religion mm. was something that Roosevelt himself gives a major speech. Yeah, he does. And falls hook, line, and sinker. And it's not like he's doing this on purpose. He thinks this is real. Or does he? Oh, okay. I like that. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I mean... We, there's no document which says I, Franklin D. Roosevelt, know this map to be fake. However, there is strong circumstantial evidence to show that he, it would have been strange if he hadn't suspected it. That's the first thing to say. And I think there's, there's an area between knowing something to be true or untrue. And in this gray area between the two where you can suspect something to be false or a forgery and you just don't ask the question. And that is a form of deceit or deception in itself. But um, he almost certainly knew. He knew that the British were trying to create evidence of plots, Nazi plots in South America. And I've got the, um, I've gone through the records of a meeting where one of his, uh, well, yeah, Adolf Burley comes in, tells him about three British plots in the last few months. So he knows this is what the British are trying to do. A few weeks later, this map appears on his desk and it shows South America as it will look after a successful German invasion. All of the national boundaries have been redrawn. There's, um, there are Lufthansa routes showing how German officials would get about this conquered South American continent. And he goes public with it. He says, I have proof of uh, a German plan to take over South America. And then he takes it further. He says, this is evidence, not just of a threat against South America, but a threat against the United States itself. In other words, this is another reason why we need to come into the war. So he doesn't question this. I think he knew that it had probably come from MI6. He knew about the channel of communication between Little Bill Stevenson and Big Bill Donovan. But it served his purposes. So he was prepared to use it and just hope that nobody found out about it. The map had actually been made by a guy called Eric Mashwitz in a forgery section in Toronto. And this is the guy who later becomes the BBC Director of Light Entertainment. And uh, there he is producing these, these actually very impressive forgeries. If you're into forgeries, these are um, fine examples of them. And, uh, and they do, I mean, it, the next question is, so what? What impact does this speech have? One of the things it does, it helps to galvanize interventionist feeling within America. But there's something else that happens in Berlin, which I think is, is interesting and worth talking about. So the reaction from German state-controlled press is furious, outraged. There's, um, they lay into Roosevelt, describing him as everything under the sun, a forger, a liar, a charlatan, etc. Hitler's first public speech after Roosevelt's is about eight days later, and in that speech he can talk of almost nothing but this, this South American map. He's furious. But it also appears to do something else. It appears to change the way he sees Roosevelt as a political adversary. So up until then, he's very much seen him as someone shackled, if you like, to the truth, to democratic propriety, to basically saying the right thing in public. But what he's just seen appears to shift that. And then about seven days later, there's this account of him talking to Ribbentrop in private, where he says he's changed his policy on America. Up until then, he's been very clear he doesn't want to take on America until the Soviet Union is defeated. The Soviet Union obviously is not defeated, but he says to Ribbentrop he now wants to go to war against America as soon as possible, and he's just waiting for the right moment. Why does he make that decision? 
I would argue it may well be to do with that speech that Roosevelt gave and Hitler's calculation that Roosevelt now is just prepared to do anything. He's prepared to lie to his people and uh, he may declare war on Germany when Germany is not expecting it. Right. Hitler won't tolerate that. I mean, it's Hitler doing a leadership analysis, basically going, okay, I thought I knew this guy. And he basically, I mean, Hitler and Roosevelt had been in power exactly the same. Like they both, 33 yeah. is where they both kind of come to power. Yeah. So they, you know, they thought they knew each other. And all of a sudden, Hitler, after eight years of thinking he knew Roosevelt, saw a very different side of him and had to reconsider everything yeah. that he thought before that. There are these telltale lines in um, when Hitler finally declares war on America, despite having no obligation to do so, four days after Pearl Harbor, he gives a speech in the Reichstag and he describes Roosevelt as a provocateur, someone who's responsible for baseless allegations and I quote, shameless misrepresentations of the truth. And the last major speech that Roosevelt has given on foreign policy is about the South American map. I think it made an impact. I think it confirmed Hitler's decision that he wanted to go to war with America, even if strategically, militarily, it was a mistake. And ironically, it was Hitler telling the truth in that actual <laughs> speech because Roosevelt was yeah. pulling BS out of his, out of his rear. Um, and what's great, I mean, of course, the, the only time that the Germans successfully invade South America was after the war, when they went to Argentina. Um, <laughs> that's, let's, let me ask you the question that I think that matters in this case, because we're, we're now dealing, you know, literally as we speak on the television, we're having conversations in Congress about the impact mm. of um, how fake news and how um, not only social media in our case, but also uh, news on television has impacted American perceptions back in 2016. Let's talk about in 1940 and 41. How impactful was this fake news? Or is that like the sequel to this? Because you, you, you do spend a little time on it, but it's not the mm. whole book. And so what, what are your conclusions based on how being able to plant these kinds of news stories that were complete nonsense, um, like completely made up? I'm, I'm trying to get that point across. Mm -hmm. Like there were news stories that were fake completely made up <laughs> about British operations, about rescue missions, about things like that, mm. that were fed to the American public. We call it black propaganda. They didn't know where they're coming from. Mm. That clearly were read by Americans and said, wow, the British are doing much better than I thought they were. Maybe mm. we should support these guys. I mean, mm. how impactful was it? The horrible thing is I wish I could give you a really clear, yes. simple answer. And the clearest and simplest answer I can say is that we can never know precisely what the impact was. And the same goes for Russia 2016. And having spent a long time reading about a lot of different influence operations, anyone who tells you that X or Y influence campaign or influence operation definitively changed a particular political outcome is, is on thin ice. I mean, it's, it's such a hard thing to understand why someone changes their mind or makes a particular decision when, let's say, they're asked a question by a pollster or when they go into the polling booth and, and cast a vote. You never know. You never know exactly. All you can do is speculate as to just the volume of stories and the types of reactions you see in newspapers and so on. Based on that, so I'm, I'm lots of caveats here. It's not, um, this is not a precise answer. I would argue it certainly played a part. It played a part in shifting American public opinion so that on the eve of Pearl Harbor, some of these polls were showing 75%, 80% of the American people saying, actually, we need to defeat Nazi Germany eventually. This is something which has to happen. And 
I suppose that, you know, one of the kind of, you could say, so what? Pearl Harbor surely is the one thing that, that matters. Yes, that explains how America ends up at war with Japan. Why does Germany, despite having no obligation to do so, declare war on America? I would argue that uh, certainly some of this British operation played a, a small part in that. But there's one other thing which I think is it's so often not overlooked, which completely changes the complexion of this conflict. And I think it is to do with this public opinion shift. There's a moment early January 1942 where Roosevelt fairly calmly announces that the, the United States armed forces are not going to go after Japan first. They're going after Germany mm -hmm. first and then Japan after that, which on the face of it makes no sense. I mean, Japan has just carried out this surprise attack. It's been devastatingly successful. Surely Japan is the country to defeat first. But by that point, the American people are so convinced that Germany is the problem. Germany is the enemy that needs to be defeated. And that is where the influence campaign, the effect of it, I think, is most clearly felt. And that, of course, changes the shape of what happens next. Let me ask you one last question. I'm going to put you on the spot. It's conjecture. <laughs> you can answer it and you can not answer it. We obviously have heaps of evidence that the Soviets were very effective in recruiting prominent Americans to spy directly for the NKVD, mm. whether they're scientists or politicians, all the way up into the White House. Mm. At least useful idiots, maybe even including the Vice President of the United States, Henry Wallace, at some point. How can we argue, because we kind of do, that the Germans don't successfully recruit anyone at high levels, or the British don't successfully recruit anyone at high levels. Everyone we've talked about hmm. has been a useful idiot, a fellow traveler, a someone agent working with agent of influence, someone working with, not for. Is it possible that the Soviets are the only ones that are able to recruit directly people to work for them? Or are we giving too much credit to the people we like, the Donovans of the world, the, the Lindberghs, <laughs> the Wokies of the world, that they are not directly agents working for a foreign government? I mean, I think there's there's an assumption in that that I want to that I would have had as well a couple of years ago, but I want to challenge. And the assumption is that to have someone who is signed up as an agent working for a particular government, that that's the stronger, more powerful position to be in. And if you're just an agent of influence, then you've, nobody has any real hold upon you. There's this moment where uh, Donovan has just become head of the COI, and there's someone who suggests. Churchill should write a letter to Donovan congratulating him. And someone writes back immediately saying this is a terrible idea because if this ever gets out, somebody will accuse, make the accusation that Donovan is actually working for the British. And as this MI6 note goes on, of course, instead, he's merely a freelance and is in a much more powerful position as a result. And I'm intrigued by that, the idea that actually, as an agent of influence who is not fully signed up, you have more power because you're not beholden to a particular government line. So, um, yeah, I, I think the Russians were particularly good at it. The British would, would place more emphasis on, on recruiting or finding agents of influence, and perhaps these were sometimes more powerful than fully signed up agents. The book is Agents of Influence, a British campaign, a Canadian spy, and a secret plot to bring America into World War II. The author is Henry Hemming. Thank you so much, Henry, for joining us today on SpyCast. Pleasure. Good to talk. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit. If you want to donate to the museum, or if you're local and want to volunteer at the museum, please visit our website at spymuseum.org for more information.